Chapter 18 of The Raid of Dover, A Romance of the Reign of Woman, A.D. 1940, by Douglas Morey Ford. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Wreck of the Airship The little island of Herm possessed only one building of importance, a monastery of French refugees. In the great walled-in courtyard there was present an object of special and curious interest to the monks. The arrival of the Bladud had been observed with astonishment by all the inmates of the monastery, who naturally associated its coming with that of a certain mysterious visitor, a sun-scorched, iron-gray, emaciated man, who had recently landed on the island, coming, it was said, from the coast of France. The visitor who remained in complete seclusion in the building, sedulously nursed back to health and strength, was treated with extraordinary deference and respected by the superior. That much the monks could not fail to know, but any sly inquiries and surmises on their part were met with the sternest and most peremptory discouragement. Excitement was quickened, therefore, when only a few hours after the arrival of the airship preparations were made for the distinguished visitor's departure. Lyndon stood in the courtyard, glancing anxiously at his watch while Wilton, the engineer, put some finishing touches to the gear. The little man had proved himself a model of discretion. He asked no questions, but now and then threw quick glances towards the tall, thin stranger, who, at a respectful sign from Linton, had taken his seat in the stern of the boat. Whether Wilton knew or suspected the identity of Wilson Renshaw, who now calmly waited for the voyage to commence, Linton could not tell. He suspected that he did, and, little guessing what a few hours would bring forth, he registered a mental picture that the silent, faithful little engineer should not go unrewarded. It struck him that there was a good deal of nervousness in Wilton's manner, as he threw upward glances at the sky. While the preparations were being completed, the superior of the order stood close at hand, addressing in subdued tones his deferential and earnest farewells to Mr. Renshaw, and Herrick, raising his eyes, saw the peering faces of at least a score of monks at the upper windows of the monastery. Glancing higher still, he noted with some uneasiness that the scurrying clouds, copper-tinged from the setting sun, betokened the coming of a wild and stormy night. Fervently he breathed the prayer that the aerial voyage might have a happy issue. But by this time he knew enough of airships to be aware that there were perils and no scientific inventions, and no precautions can wholly nullify risks from defects and mishaps with machinery, dangers from both combined, that at any moment might bring about some irreparable catastrophe. Yet, tonight, everything must be hazarded. Not an hour, not a moment must be lost. The time had come. To let it pass unseized would be to miss the tide at the flood, to sacrifice the touchstone of fortune. He glanced at Wilton. Ready? The engineer gave a quick nod and lifted a grimy finger towards his cap. Linton, raising his own cap, turned towards the illustrious passenger. Shall we start, sir? At once, please, was the answer. Linton stepped aboard and grasped the helm. Wilton took his place forward and the superior, bowing obsequiously, moved to a safe distance from the aeroplane. 
the faint preliminary throbbing of the engines instantly commenced the boat began to rise slowly at first then more rapidly as the elevating power obtained freer play every window of the monastery now was plastered with wondering eager faces intent on the bladud as she soared aloft the superior made angry and imperious gestures but the monks did not or pretend not to see this mounting of the airplane with such a passenger must not be missed it was a spectacle the like of which they would not see again higher and higher climbed the bladud beating the air with her flapping wings the cold breeze rushed through the wind harp on the mast with a sighing mournful sound as the boat swept in swiftly widening circles through the air the passenger impressed but not perturbed glanced sharply around him then feeling the growing keenness of the wind he drew his fur coat across his chest when they were high enough herrick with one eye on the compass put the tiller over and gave an order wilton lightly moved a switch and immediately the bladud headed at high speed for the open sea as the hours passed night fell dark and thick about them the wind became more violent and ever again chilly sleety squalls affected to some extent the equilibrium of the boat no one spoke except for an occasional query from herrick to which wilton responded by act or gesture only not one of the three men on board knew of any definite cause for anxiety yet in the midst of at least two of them there was a growing sense of tension and disquietude the muscles of wilton's face twitched as he sat in silence his eye watchful and his hand ready yet so far all went well to avoid prolonged dangers of the open channel they tacked northwards towards the coast of france intending to resume the sea course as nearly as possible above the straits of dover nearer land the air grew less cloudy the twinkling lights of habitations far below became visible like distant glow-worms from the numbers of these lights they could form an idea of the size of the towns and villages over which they passed some thirty-five were counted presently the silent passenger himself identified the locality and said that they were passing over the highlands between cape blanc and calais it was time to give the ship a different course and once again below them lay the wide expanse of sombre tossing sea but the bladud now encountered the strength of a growing gale from the northeast and soon it became apparent that she was being dangerously deflected from her proper course it was a discovery silently made but fraught with the fears of potential disaster if they should be blown out to sea there was but one ultimate certainty death for all on board the store of motive power could only last for a given number of hours and already much of the power had been expended their hope must lie in reaching dry ground within a period that grew perilously shorter and shorter even while they thought of it entrusting the helm for a moment to the passenger harry crawled forward and while the rising gale shrieked above and around them held a hasty whispered conversation with a now excited engineer we'll never do it sir we'll never do it wilton said hoarsely st margaret's bay why see we've left it far behind already no landing there to-night what's the best airship that ever was built against a wind like this 
"'Land us anywhere,' was Herrick's vehement answer. "'Yes, if we can,' muttered Wilson gloomily. "'I'm afeard there's something wrong with her, and that's the truth, Mr. Herrick.' "'Good God!' exclaimed Herrick, with an anxious glance towards the figure in the stern. "'See that?' gasped the engineer, as a strong gust from the north drove the bow of the boat farther seaward. "'See that, sir? I tell you, she can't stand it.' Again and again the same thing happened. The gale, so far as it was easterly, drove them westward along the coastline, and ever and again the fierce gusts from the north forced them away from it. Linton crept back to the stern. Thirty minutes passed, minutes of increasing suspense. At the end of that time they had lost their bearings. The bladude became more and more beyond control. "'Is there danger?' Renshaw asked the question very softly. "'I'm afraid there is, sir,' said Linton. The other nodded. "'I thought so. What part of the coast is that down there?' he asked after an interval. Linton peered over, pondered a minute before he answered. "'Dover's left far behind us by this time. We've passed Hastings. Those must be the lights of Brighton. We can't get down?' "'Impossible at present.' We must drive straight ahead. Inside the Isle of Wight, there'll be a chance for us. More shelter and more ships. Wilton knows that part. Can we last as long? I think so. I hope so. A long silence fell as the bladude battled with the wind. Then there came a startling, rending sound that indicated some defect in the machinery. The boat began to veer erratically. "'Steady, sir, steady,' roared Wilton, making a trumpet of his hands. "'For God's sake, head her north!' From far below there rose a sullen, surging sound, the threatening monotone of angry waves breaking upon a rocky shore. The sound grew fainter. They must be traveling inland, across the Isle of Wight. Now, then, was the time for a descent. Dimly in the forepart of the boat, Wilton's bent form could be discerned, his face peering, his hands at work in the complex box of the bladude's machinery. Suddenly he threw himself back, sitting on his heels, and Herrick thought he saw his hands raised with a gesture of despair. The bladude lurched and swayed violently, and for a moment it seemed as if the gyroscope had wholly failed to act. If that were so, in a moment the boat might lose her equilibrium, and all would end. But that was not the trouble. Linton now realized that it was the lowering apparatus that would not work. The bladude still rushed madly forward. With unchecked speed they flew across the island. Another coastline then came into view, the long low line of light stretching from Portsmouth across South Sea to Eastney and to Fort Cumberland. There was hope then, or if not ground for hope, at least a fighting chance. But the bladude now, by some inexplicable perversity of the machinery, made obstinately for the eastern extremity of the line of lights. That, again, might serve if only they could descend on the wide common of Hailing Island. They were nearing it every moment. Presently from below there rose a new menace, an angry sound, grating and monotonous, that Linton could not understand. "'What's that?' he shouted. 
the wolsners bellowed wilton in reply and made a wild gesture with his disengaged hand he knew the deadly peril those shifting banks of shingle churned in the shallows by the ceaseless action of the tides and waves the wolsners were as fatal as the goodwin sands to every ship or boat that found herself among them with a desperate effort aided by renshaw and directed by wilton herrick forced over the helm another ominous crack reached their ears but for the moment they were successful and a sudden squall from the east aided their combined efforts they now were heading straight for portsmouth harbor all might yet be well still traveling at great speed they traversed nearly half the distance it now being wilton's design to bring the bladud down on south sea common then suddenly the horizontal movement of the boat absolutely ceased all the motive power that was left in her began through some terrible mishap to be expended in the development of rapid elevation the frantic efforts of wilton to check the upward rush were unavailing the boat went up and up with terrible velocity this last catastrophe was paralyzing overwhelming climbing higher and higher the boat would rapidly exhaust her small remaining store of compressed air then in an instant would commence a reversal and the bladud would rush down through space the end for all on board inevitable death linton again left the helm in renshaw's hands it was useless to retain it he scrambled forward to assist wilton in his desperate efforts to right the machinery a dreadful feeling of sickness began to overpower him as the airship swayed and waltzed in the upper air currents lurching and riding as if struck by successive waves but ever mounting higher and yet higher it grew intensely cold feathery flakes of snow began to envelope them their lungs labored it became more and more difficult to breathe linton gasped inquiries which either wilton did not hear or could not answer he glanced back at their ill-starred passenger who had set out to recover power and a great position and now was rushing to an awful death he saw that renshaw's head rolled limply on his shoulders already he seemed to be insensible filled with terror and alarm he shouted to wilton though the man was close to hand but his voice though the effort of utterance was so great sounded even to himself quite faint and far away by the light of the protected spirit lamp fixed to the tiny engine house linton saw that the recording instrument already registered an altitude of twenty thousand feet a dull indifference began to take possession of his mind his faculties were slowly freezing even his eyesight now began to fail he could scarcely see the column of mercury in the glass or the minute hand of his watch he felt that consciousness would soon completely desert him his right hand was resting on the gunwale of the boat he found he could not raise it he could scarcely move his lower limbs and turning once more to glance at the barometer his head fell forward helplessly by a violent exercise of his muscles and his will he raised his face a little but for an instant only it drooped again he slid down into the bottom of the boat his fading gaze sought that of wilton they looked into each other's eyes like dying men bidding one another silent sad farewells 
the mists of death already seemed to be closing on them when a sudden variation of the temperature or it may be some magnetic current partially revived them but the bladud still rushed upward ever upward they had reached a height of four miles above the earth and the temperature had fallen to twenty-four degrees below freezing point of water to this appalling altitude the bladud had ascended with almost incredible rapidity upward and upward still they went until five miles then six was reached above the surface of the vanished earth out of the void a muffled voice reached linton's ears the welcome voice of a living fellow-creature it was wilton trying to rouse him wilton speaking with urgency and vehemence gradually he came out of his swoon familiar objects close to him revealed themselves again wilton was lying on the bottom of the boat he was striving in vain to reach linton the piercing cold had almost paralyzed him his hands were freezing what did wilton want what was he trying to do as far as could be judged they had now reached an altitude of thirty-seven thousand feet nearly seven miles the mists closed in again the thread of life was on the point of breaking linton became half conscious that a thick crust of ice had formed upon his clothes his breath was freezing on his lips and in his nostrils he glanced again with an agonizing effort at the moving record of their elevation another one thousand feet then two thousand feet needles of ice were pricking at his eyes close to him the prone form of wilton seemed to be covered with minute crystals from head to foot linton tried to stretch out his hands to touch him but found that they were helpless numbed what he vaguely wondered was wilton doing now what mad idea was this with an exhausted effort the engineer had just smashed the lens of his telescope then his hands seemed again to fail him watching him helplessly linton felt that everything was useless hopeless lost it would soon be over but linton had gripped the broken glass of the telescope between his teeth what was he doing now why was he sawing frantically convulsively at that tightened cord ah that was it well done wilton but it was hopeless quite hopeless after all linton rolled his head feebly they had climbed another thousand feet and were mounting still no what was this there was a change something had happened linton was sensible of a strange eddying a pause a feebler flapping of the aeroplanes merciful god the boat had ceased to rise now she was sinking sinking with appalling speed yet checked to some extent by the broad aeroplanes just as a bird would be when with extended wings it floated down to earth he tried to frame some words tried to touch wilton with his hand failed to do either wilton lay motionless with bleeding lips out of the blur of mental chaos linton herrick found himself roughly dragged back to consciousness kneeling in the boat he discovered that he was submerged in water to the waist flecks of salt water smote him in the face all around there was a welter of wild tossing waves in his ears to add to his distraction there sounded a harsh and melancholy bell it was tolling tolling close at hand the bladud waterlogged 
tossed feebly in the trough of the angry sea built on a theory that she could float for a considerable period it nevertheless rushed in upon linton's mind that in a few minutes she would sink he struggled to his feet grasping the rigging as he did so something arrested his attention what was that silent log-like thing the waves were rolling yonder in the semi-darkness it must be wilton poor wilton who had saved their lives or tried to save them only to lose his own wilton dead a voice hailed him it came from renshaw his companion he also was on his feet swaying from side to side as the boat settling deeper and deeper in the water plunged and lurched beneath them look cried renshaw the boy we must swim for it as he spoke he plunged over the side and struck out for a towering object that rose and fell in the waves only a few yards away linton realized that that was where the clangor of the bell was coming from the refuge of the shipwrecked the bell-boy close at hand before he fully knew what he was about he too was struggling in the waves he was a strong swimmer but clogged with his wet clothing another yard or two would have been too much for him he shouted some incoherent words of encouragement to renshaw and struck out with all his small remaining strength the tall framework of the spit-boy rose out of the sea just in front of him from its apex came louder than ever the noise of the iron clapper beating on the metal as the tossing sea roiled the huge boy this way and that his hand touched something hard he grasped an iron rail slowly and laboriously he drew his dripping form out of the sea then panting heavily he threw himself face downward full length on the deck of the boy and stretched out both hands to the other swimmer renshaw's strength seemed well-nigh spent he was making futile struggles to rid himself of his heavy coat as he rolled over helplessly almost swept beneath the boy linton grasped his collar the next moment he had drawn him to the rail a breathing space and then another effort exhausting and prolonged two panting men half drowned but saved lay side by side upon the boy fenced from the greedy sea by rusty dripping iron bars above them in the stormy mournful night ding-dong the bell kept clanging to and fro this way and that with every wave and motion of the singing sea end of chapter eighteen